Welcome to the Books on Air podcast. I'm Suzanne Harris, and on our podcast, we not only talk to the authors about themselves and their books, but we also talk to them about their ideas. I'm going to introduce you to such a fascinating person. His name is Peter Mason, and He's going to talk about a trilogy that's called the Learning Experience Trilogy. The three books are, book one is Nipper, book two is Moose Conquering Fear, and book three is Know Your Mind, and it was just published this year. Peter, I can't wait to talk to you. Welcome to Books on Air. It's such a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Suzanne. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. You know, as I was doing my homework, looking at all the information that I found about you, there were several things that just really stood out for me, and I'm very, very curious. I know that your first work that you published was a couple of volumes of poetry. I am always intrigued by poets. How old were you when you first started writing poetry, and what attracted you to poetry? That's a very good question. I was, uh, I suppose I had a very influential uh, English master. And I'm sure many writers would probably say the same thing, uh, who was very inspiring, uh, very open to all forms of communication in literature and poetry. Uh, and it's from that starting point you get a, you have an appreciation for all things. It's a bit like music take musical taste. If somebody said to me, "Well, what music would you like? Do you like to hear?" I'd say, "Well, there's, there's a variety of them. I'm, I don't exclude any of them, whether it be jazz or pop or or whatever. Uh, there's room for everyone and everything, every way of of um, conveying a message or getting your points across." And poetry is one such. And although some may dismiss it as, you know, maybe it's too obscure, it probably comes down to the fact that um, the uh, introduction that's been made to them, their first poem that they ever read may not have been uh, the correct one or the the one that's, you know, the least obscure. Um I do actually make a point in the preface to the first book about one of the things that put me off reading, uh, not for life, thankfully, but initially, was being given A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. And I never got past the first two pages. And as a 10-year-old, I think I was at the time, I was extremely uh, unimpressed by by (laughs) reading. (laughs) So uh, it wasn't the best of starts, um, but when I when I became I don't know fourteen fifteen, uh, uh, there was a book which which took my interest. Uh, it was I think a book of the supernatural of all things, um, and that's where the English master picked up from, and he was very uh, encouraging. I didn't write any poetry at that point because that was your question, was when did I first start? Um, But he gave me a love of English and that really never left me. 
I love the language. I love languages. I'm first and foremost a linguist. Um, studied French and Russian at university. And I just love the ex- different expressions. I love the, the flexibility that you have to have to introduce foreign phrases into your language because you, you can't say it better than they can. Um, and, and that's always a, you know, a wonder and a marvel to me is, is finding and going to different places and cultures uh, and discovering new phrases. And you think, oh, that's a really good way of putting it. The last one being uh, Chinese. Um, you know, there are crossovers with, <laughs> with English, believe it or not. Um, in some of the phrases that we use, they come directly from Chinese. Um, to go back to your question of when did I start writing poetry, uh, I would have to say it was in France. Um, when I spent uh, my third year of university uh, doing work experience in France for a year. Um, and that's when I started. Uh, it would have been after, well after the three months that you need to become fluent in the language and not just fluent, but also the, the, the big sign is if you dream in the language, you know that you, you've got there. And after that arrived and I became more outgoing because I could communicate better with everybody around me, uh, I found myself in a, a situation um, where I wanted to write and the language that came more naturally to me was French. How so that interesting. Was my first attempt. Hmm. How interesting. <laughs> it wasn't in my native language. Not my uh, expectation no. at all. <laughs> no, no, well, it, it, it kind of surprised me, but it. Because you, I don't know, I think I was more familiar with what I wanted to say and it just made sense to do it in that language. And I didn't try and translate it into English because that wouldn't have worked either. Um, Well, I have to explore, I have to explore here one thing because you hmm. said this as we were offline just chatting. You talked about the fact that you needed to do an audible with your poetry. Tell yeah. me a little bit about that. Did you read the audi- you read the poetry yourself for the audible book that's on that's online for your poetry. Is that what I'm hearing? Is that right? Yes, that's correct. For for one of the uh, the shorter book of poems uh, that I did the um uh, the the, uh, the sketch poems I think they were, they were called. Um and the reason that I wanted to do an audible was that when I read other people's poetry from centuries ago, I always wondered what it would have sounded like coming out of their own mouths. And it it also occurred to me that the meaning and the intonation that you put when you're reading poetry is important because you're conveying the intent of the poet of the poetry uh, better than probably any other person reading it um, because obviously you could take you know another person a professional who would read the poetry for audible and and you pay them to do that but it wouldn't convey the essence of what I wanted to get across in the poem that I'd written can you hear um, me nodding my head no 
it seemed to me, and I, I always put myself in a position of, um, let's say, elderly folks who are unable to, to read. Perhaps their vision isn't as good as it used to be, who are more reliant on um, uh, the spoken word, you know, and podcasts such as this one. Um, and uh, I just thought that it would have more resonance for them if they didn't just sit down and read it themselves, but actually took in the intonation, as I said before, and the accent and which bits are accentuated more than others. Um, it, was, it was just something that I wanted to do. It was also actually towards, I think it was the beginning of the, it was after I'd finished my sort of final work and just before the pandemic. And I, I'd had a, a summer of thinking, I want, uh, just because I finished work, it means I don't, I don't want to not stop learning because all through my career, I've been, you know, learning every day. So I thought, well, what kind of challenge can I set myself, which I can do myself? And I thought, well, I might as well do a, a recording and learn as much as I can about the whole um, editing process, uh, audio editing. Interesting. Um, and that was uh, over a matter of probably four months, and I probably went through eight versions of it before I got to the final version. And <laughs> one, of, one of the experiences was, you know, initially you think, oh, I can do this all myself, so I'll find a nice quiet part of the house <laughs> in which to sit. Right. And you make your first recording and then you listen back and you've got all the crackling coming from the computer <laughs> processor. You've got the traffic on the outside, which you thought, well, I can't hear it. I've got triple gla I had triple glazed windows, <laughs> you know, which kept the sound out. But when they're recording, they're all there. So there's no, there's no such thing as, um, what, what do they call it? It's not white, white space. It's the, it's the no, no sound space that you have at the beginning and the ends of sentences that you're recording. Something so you never thought often, about before, <laughs> right? I didn't know how much um, noise there is. Yes, ambient noise yes. in any room. Yes, and it didn't matter where I was in the house and how quiet I thought it was. And I had a, an outdoor study as well, uh, where. I thought this this is it, but it wasn't. No. And ultimately, I had to go um, and worked with a professional, go to a professional studio uh, in Oxford, and um, worked with them. And it didn't take very long at all, and didn't cost very much either, I might say, as well, uh, to get a, a, a not a clean version because you still have to do some editing afterwards to to make sure that it's crisp and clean um, before submitting it. So, um, yeah, that was the reason for doing that. The reason that I wanted us to talk about that is, and I told you, I've told you this already, your well, prose is beautiful. Your prose is beautiful because I think you have, not only that you are you articulate and intelligent, but you have 
the poet's ear. And so when you write, your writing flows. Your writing is the kind of writing, this is the way that I describe, I don't read very many um I don't read very many authors' work that fall into what I'm about to say. It's as if I put my toe in a, in a flowing stream as I start to read your work. The more that I read, all of a sudden, I feel my, I'm up to my ankle in the flowing stream and then up to my knee. And then I'm flowing down the stream of your words. And that is a very unique thing for me to say about an author's work. And I'm, I'm perfectly convinced that a poet's ear influences the writing of fiction. And yours is really, mm -hmm. really beautiful. So let's talk a little bit about the mm -hmm. books. Now, you, you made three books, Nipper, Moose Conquering mm -hmm. Fear, and Know Your Mind. Why three books? Why a trilogy that you call a learning experience trilogy? Well, this I never I never expected to write less. This was always going to be the start of a of a concept, and uh, that concept came to me over a period of time, really a period of years. Um, kick-started by certain things which happened to me and I thought, well, for example, I'll give just one example that I, I quote in the in the preface to the, the last book, which is there were a series of programs that were aired um, on the BBC about uh, families and they went back every decade to see what had changed with those families. And that, for me, was interesting because they looked at physical developments of course behavioral changes and all that kind of thing and it was a fairly heavy mix but what i um what i wanted to do was really look at one individual rather than many families over over time being and of course i began with my own experience because that's the one i'm most familiar with and i wanted to track not just the experience which would have given rise to the thought that well, this is perhaps just a, uh, a normal account of, you know, coming of age to adulthood and, and beyond. Um, and turned it into looking at how your mind, which filters things in life, in the physical world, every moment of the day, so there are things that, you know, for example, you might want to say, but you don't. You keep them to yourself. Right. Um, because it would embarrass the others that are around you. Um, and the more I thought about it, I thought, well, yes, I can still go through that learning journey, if you like, of, of life, but concentrate on the mind's evolution over time. So when you're young, you it's looking at not just the um, the good and the bad things that happen to you, but also the beliefs that you formulate as a young a youngster. So you you might absorb the you know the beliefs of your parents initially and those that teach you, um, but then the independent streak comes out fairly soon, 
and you realize that actually this is a journey that only you can fulfill. Nobody else is going to do this for you. And that realization then kicks in big time when you go out of, move on from university or from training as a profession to uh, adult life, where it seems as though a lot of your principles become eroded um, because of the stress. Uh, some of those beliefs that you originally had are dismantled, and you are having to cope with some very strange and new either challenges or dilemmas or or you're facing up to responsibilities as we all have done and do in, in adult life. Um, and I was thinking, well, it's not just enough to quantify what these things were, but it's also to equip people with strategies to cope with those things. And the second book really hinges around that word fear because we carry over fears from our childhood days and I detail those in the first book and carry them on in the second as to how I dealt with them. But there are also fears uh, as you as you grow through relationships and that kind of thing, which um, which you need a strategy to cope with. And one of the things, you know, the the, the second book is is probably uh, bleaker in a way because there are some some fairly stressful circumstances and. What was in my mind there was I need to provide people and young people in particular with ways of coping. And this is not just because of the pandemic when mental health became a, a big, um, it was exposed for what it, but it's always been there. And what I'd experienced before was actually through my children who are now young adults, who when they were both in their 17 and 18 year old at that age group in the sixth, what we call here the sixth form. Um, they both had experiences of one of their peers committing suicide. Oh dear. And I had experienced that myself as a teacher with somebody who went to a very good senior school in, in the private sector doing the same thing. And I thought at that time, all those years ago, I thought, what a waste. <laughs> this person had everything. And going for them, and it was it was brought to a close. And I thought there must be something that I can, you know, do to to help people who are in the, who feel they have no other course of action. Um, so I thought, well, and, and the the way I, I I put it forward was that you can use the strength of your mind to overcome these difficulties and and ease those fears. So that you can calm those troubled waters when they when they come upon you. Um, and then the third book is a vastly is a different part of that journey because, as you will see from the bibliography, uh, it's a much more uh, academically focused philosophy. In other words, out of all this this journey that that I hopefully take the reader on. There are things to be learned, yes, but it, you can emerge from it with a new philosophy of how 
your mind fits in around your physical world and how it can, more importantly, how it can influence the world around you and your communication with other people. And one of the things that I talk about in the third book is actually looking at the whole, the evolution of language. So, you know, we, if you go back to, uh, I forget what the film is now, so many million years BC, um, you know, it's full of grunts and groans and that sort of thing. And you think, mm, well, yeah, you take it at face value <laughs> and you think, well, we don't really know, do we? <laughs> exactly. You know, before, before words existed, we don't know what happened. And um, uh, But I had to do a lot of research uh, for that third book, and I'll come to that in a minute. But the, uh, the the evolutionary part of it, I thought, well, there are things that I've discovered through a very sort of regimental but a very methodical way of analysing experiences that I've had and trying different things and trying to isolate them. So, that, you know, in a very scientific way that I thought, well, maybe this is how we first communicated you know, when we didn't have language. And in order to do that, as I said, I, I had to refer to some of the leading experts in their field to do with the entire history of mankind, how they've evolved, how philosophy has evolved, how evolution has evolved, and those people, you know, are icons from, of mine in terms of, They've taken the trouble to put these things down, and if uh, I've actually recommended some of these books on the Balboa Press website, because you you can do that now, uh, you, you wouldn't, you know, it it's something which I think everybody can learn from. So you know things like Life on Earth by Attenborough, uh, Harari's Sapiens, which looks at the whole evolution of mankind. Uh, up as far as uh, uh, Hawking and his brief history of time oh. to get understand scientific evolution through to the, philosopher, the great philosopher Bertrand Russell and his Western philosophy um, compendium like, of, uh, uh, of how philosophy has evolved and the problems with it and how what we uh, how the scientific community sort of diverged if you like from what used to be considered a an overarching view of man's place in the universe. As you wrote the books, did you see the audience for each book as a different age group? For example, Nipper is the first book. Who's the audience? Who were you thinking about when you wrote Nipper? And is George you, by the way? George is the main character. <laughs> Well, the, the content is certainly biographical, yes. And I, uh, you know, I have to rely on my own experience, especially towards the, you know, in the second and the third books to, to bring to fruition, if you like, what that journey has meant. Um, and the, uh, the, the, to answer your question, the first, the first book I wrote deliberately for the younger age group. So, I tried, and I hope I, I don't know whether I succeeded, but I tried to make the language simpler, especially in the initial chapters, because 
uh, I would hope that, you know, a person of 11 or 12 could pick up the book and not find it difficult to read. Um, but it then, as you go through the chapters, it appeals probably more to the teenage uh, year group, if you like, that they uh, they can resonate perhaps more with the things that are being felt there and the challenges that they face. Um, but it should nonetheless be appealing to an older audience who just like reading, uh, you know, the passage of time from a young age and reminiscences because most people have reminiscences of, of sorts uh, during their time. Um, and just see it as a, you know, a starting point, really. Oh, the story with the squeeze bottles. I <laughs> sat there and I read it and I, I started to laugh because you're absolutely right. I think every one of us, as we read that story about uh, <laughs> what they, what the two kids were, were doing mm-hmm. with these squeeze bottles and, and what happened, uh, there's all, we've, we've all done something. And perhaps we got caught, perhaps we didn't, but we've all done something that in the midst of it, we thought, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. I was right there in that village with those two boys, and I just thought, I thought that was wonderful. That was, the way that you paint the picture, once again, it's it's that that poetic influence, the way that you paint the picture of what's happening. I really enjoyed that, and I think anyone would enjoy that, and as a former teacher myself, you and I both have taught, I, I kept thinking about things that would, would be useful. And I thought, you know, this is a book that parents could use, even with children, to read your language aloud would be wonderful for a child. And a child would have to sit there and laugh at the antics of George. I mean, he's he's such a wonderful character. And then the second book, Moose Conquering Fear, the cover immediately caught my attention because you have a young boy standing on a promontory of rock looking down at the fin of a giant shark. And if that doesn't get across what's happening in that book, I can't imagine. I I really, really think what you've done is so interesting with this trilogy. Mm. Would you? I hope that it appeals... It's always been a desire because I have worked in in my latter years in my career. I have liaised with um, the Leeds University Business School uh, to help their uh, students in that are studying for master's degrees in international business to make their work relevant and to appeal to that kind of audience um, or any sort of audience, really. and as you say, if if I can get these onto shelves so that people have access to them, like my local library, for example, I've donated all all my books to to them because I want people to be able to access them who otherwise might not be able to afford them. Um, then I'd, I'd hope that you know they could be a resource if you like. So one one thing which has permeated through almost solidly throughout my business career is that when I create something uh, one person asked me once they said oh uh, that that presentation you did that's that's really good but um, 
Uh, I expect you'll be updating it next uh, next year, won't you? And I went, no, I won't be updating it, no. Maybe right at the very beginning, if the marketing material has changed, I might do it. But otherwise, no. When I write something, I write it with uh, longevity in mind. I want it to last. So everything that's in there can be relevant to any person reading it, not just now. So it's not sort of hinged or it's not constrained by, uh, you know, the, the, the time that we're living in now um, in the 21st century, but in the 22nd century and 23rd century, you want people to be, they'll probably be feeling the same things and can resonate with what you've written. That was the intention as well. Let's share a little bit of book three, Know Your Mind. I believe that you have a reading that you'd like to share with the listener so they can hear how the book sounds. Yes, uh, yes, I do. Um, my choice is probably um, uh, a little unusual in that I'm not going to read from the text itself. I'm going to read from the epilogue. And the reason I want to read this um, to your audience here is because it's part of the takeaway or part of the the reasons that I've put this trilogy together and what I want people to do as a result of it. Um, Because as in business, you're always looking for the next steps. And there are more than one one step that we that I can take after this, and I'm already reaching out to people to try and take those next steps. But this is for uh, the ordinary reader, and what uh, what I'd like to uh, for them to you know not to change the way they do things, but just to to have that openness uh, in mind. So. Yes, if, you, if, you, if you're ready, I will read you uh, the epilogue. And it's mercifully short. Please. <laughs> okay. So it, it relates to um, uh, a trip that I made to, uh, several trips that I made to Melbourne in Australia. I had the good fortune to travel to Melbourne in Australia a couple of times. If asked to name three things which made an impression on me there, they would have to be the following. Firstly, the Yarra Yarra River that dominates the downtown central business district and provides the backdrop for nightly celebrations with jets of fire scorching the sky at sunset. The second would be the overriding feeling of contentment walking to work up the hill from the river. I wondered at first why this was such a pleasant experience, but quickly discovered the source in the faces of those around me and in their relaxed gait. On the sparsely populated pavements, their smiles shone out, reflected in the sparkling office windows on another fine day. Their calm, unhurried pace conveyed a state of being at one with their world. And then thirdly, further up that hill, where light traffic enters your field of vision, a curiosity meets the eye, 
cars pulling off to the left at a crossroads in order to make a right turn, known to me as a J-turn, but by others perhaps as a hook turn. It was not so much the practicality of avoiding tram lines going down the centre of the road which made an impact on me, but the complementary nature of their rallentando approach to the junction that seemed to be in perfect harmony with the pedestrians walking alongside them. Just as pulling over out of the flow of bi-directional traffic lanes to make a J-turn is deliberate, so stepping out of the mainstream is a conscious move. When considering the workings of the mind, I feel we have to make a similar J-turn. The physical world continues to hasten by at variable and sometimes blistering speeds. But stepping out of that zone and parking the stresses of our complex lives can allow our mind to fill the void, bring balance to our well-being and connect better with each other. I love it. The visual language, the imagery, did the Melbourne Chamber of Commerce <laughs> pay you for that? <laughs> it's lovely. It makes me immediately want to see what what you just talked about and feel what you just felt. I love can that. I, can, can I just state for the record? <laughs> you may, that, Peter. There's no money exchanged <laughs> as a result of any of what I've written or said. I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. It's just so lovely and complimentary about Melbourne. Uh, immediately, you know, you've always heard things about the Aussies, and to hear that kind of comment just reinforces the, the image that I've always had of Australia itself and about the Australian people. I've just always thought that they were so calm and so laid back and their environment is so lovely and so beautiful. I thought you captured that wonderfully. I was only teasing about the Chamber of Commerce. Surely they knew. <laughs> well, without sort of putting a dampener on it, um, and the uh, Australians themselves, and I... I I'm very familiar with that because uh, a quarter, well, roughly a half, actually, of my grand grandparents' side are, were Australian, and I'm about quarter Australian, I think. Um, if they, if you ask them about Melbourne, especially if they're not from Melbourne, they will just say one thing about it, which is, well, if you're not happy with the weather in Melbourne, just wait five minutes. <laughs> I see. <laughs> <laughs> You can get four. You can have four seasons in one day down there, and it, it, that that is true. But at the same time, it is you know a lovely, relaxed atmosphere. And having been to Sydney as well, um, I, I must admit I I did like the the, the, the calmness uh, of that city. It is uh, yeah. Well, this has been delightful. Our our time is nearing an end, and I just have one more thing that I want to ask, and that is when our listeners become readers and they pick up a copy of all three books and they read Nipper and they read Moose Conquering Fear and they read Know Your Mind and they come to the very last page of the third book for the very last time and they're about to close 
the back cover of that book. What is the bottom line message? What is the takeaway for the reader that you would like them to leave with from the trilogy? I would like any reader of these books to leave with an open mind. An open mind that things can be different, that perspectives on this life can be changed or altered, uh, and also that it doesn't matter what challenges are thrown at you, and some can be pretty mean, uh, that there are ways of coping with these things, and that the mind is definitely the best tool for doing that. I know that we have not told them yet where to find the book, so this is a perfect opportunity to do that, and it is on all three books. I actually have looked and know all three books are on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon, there's a a little drop-down menu in the left-hand column, select books, and then Put in the title of the book. Now, let me give you the last book, which was new this this year, 2023. It's Know Your Mind by Peter, P-E-T-E-R, Masom, M-A-S-S-A-M. You can also find Moose Conquering Fear, also written by Peter Masom, and Nipper also by Peter Mason. Those are the three books that make up the trilogy. They're all on Amazon, and when you go to Amazon to look at the book, there's a brief description, and also up in the upper right-hand corner of the representation of the cover is a phrase that says, open here. If you put your cursor on that phrase and just click on it, the book will electronically open, and you'll be able to read an excerpt from the book itself. Now, Peter, I know that Amazon is the largest bookseller in the world, I'm sure, and I know that there are people in our audience who would like to buy their books from Amazon, but then there are others who would like to buy from a smaller source. Are there some other places that they could pick up a copy of any of these three books and the books of poetry that you've written? Uh, yes, there is. Um, I just should say there are. I, w- I hope that, uh, that there are there are two places really. One is the uh, publisher for the last for this trilogy, which is Balboa Press. And that can be accessed as a .com or in the UK. Um, and the other other thing to know is that these these books are also available through the major wholesalers. Uh, one of which is Gardeners, and Gardeners are a, a huge supplier of people uh, of bookstores, independents, uh, libraries here as well. Um, so. You know, if, if you just wanted a, a, a copy, you could go to your, without paying anything, you could go to a local library and ask them for it, and they should be able to get hold of it for you. Um, otherwise, if you'd like your own copy to to read in soft 
hardback or in Kindle version, yes, you can uh, buy those from uh, independent bookstores as well as from um, uh, Balboa Press. It has been such a delight to meet you and talk with you. There are so many other topics that you and I could have touched on. We could be talking for at least an hour. It's just such a pleasure. Thank you so much for spending your time with me today and with our listeners on Books on Air. Oh, it's been wonderful. Um, Thank you for uh, taking the time and uh, your listeners too. Now, don't forget, you can find any of Peter Massam's work on Amazon and Balboa Press. Now, you've been listening to the Books on Air podcast brought to you on webtalkradio.net. You can also listen to this podcast on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and Apple Podcast. I'm Suzanne Harris, and I so hope that you'll join me for our next Books on Air podcast, because remember, you never know who's going to be here, and you never know what we're going to talk about. Thank you so very much for listening.